Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Starting the series a month ago, I realised that the chance of you remembering uh, it, the first message is probably very, very little or very small. So for the first part of the message, I'm going to redo the introduction. After I've redone the introduction, the message will be different from that first one, but I'm going to do the introduction so to kind of bring us back to the subject uh, in hand, which I've called Watershed Moments. Life is defined by two moments of time, but most of us are only aware of one. Now, we're familiar with what we call chronological time, the linear unfolding of time. So we live, we, we die, uh, we, we call it our lifetime. But beyond that time that defines the parameters of a life, there is another kind of time that defines the outcome of a life. Ancient Greeks and Hebrews had a good grasp of this second uh, perspective on time. Uh, I think perhaps even better than we postmoderns do. They, they had a word for time. They had two words for time, actually. The first was chronos, which described the linear unfolding of time. And then another word for which we have actually no English equivalent. The word was kairos. Now, kairos wasn't about length of time. It was something altogether different. Kairos referred to the quality and content of a particular moment in time. So a kairos moment is a moment that's filled with opportunity. It's filled with significance. It's, it's a moment pregnant with eternal significance. Now, in English, to try and capture that idea, we have a phrase, and we call it a watershed moment. A watershed moment is a turning point in time. It's the exact moment that changes the direction of a life, an activity, or a situation. A watershed moment is a dividing point from which things will never be the same. One wonders if we're not actually in a watershed moment in terms of our cultural situation. Kairos is a decisive moment. William Shakespeare grasped the idea of a Kairos moment when he famously had Brutus say in the play Julius Caesar, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, the, all the voyages of their life are bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea we are now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our venture. That's, that's capturing the idea of a Kairos moment, a moment of incredible significance. The scripture has a number of places where Kairos is used, indicating a crucial moment in time packed with this significance. Probably one that you're very familiar with is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 44, where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and the rejection by Israel of his ministry up to that time. And, and he prophesies and says, the Romans will come, destroy this temple, they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the Kairos. You did not know this eternally significant moment in time. Sometimes you hear uh, or you read about a person who has said as a result of a decision that they have made or an action that they have taken, it's said of them they have crossed the Rubicon. Now, that, that idiom, crossing the Rubicon, means to pass a point of no return. And it refers to Julius Caesar back in BC 49 when he crossed that river, the river Rubicon. In doing so, he started an insurrection which changed the whole uh, nature of Roman history. 
So whether it's a Kairos time, a watershed moment, or crossing the Rubicon, we understand that there are certain moments in time that have eternal significance. There are moments when, these moments are the, are the moments when, when there is the greatest potential to shape the deepest parts of who we are and what we are becoming. There are times when we are aware, sometimes painfully aware, that we're on the cusp of a vital moment that requires a decision from us that will be momentous in, in, in its outworking. It doesn't really matter whether we call it a Kairos moment, a watershed moment, or whether we call it crossing the Rubicon. Our personal response to these crucial moments are eternally significant and often filled with tremendous ambivalence, uncertainty, indecisiveness. We simply don't know what to do. It's really interesting, but the Hebrew language doesn't have a word for ambivalence. The nearest it comes is to is Elijah's question to the Baal-worshipping Israelites when he asked them, how long will you halt or waver between two opinions? Although Hebrew doesn't have a word for ambivalence, it has a tune for ambivalence. Now, let, let me try and explain what I mean. In the synagogues, uh, and in the ancient synagogues, even to today, the scriptures are chanted or sung rather than being read. And the rabbi, or the cantor, the song leader, sings the appointed passage. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, there is a very rare note. It, it's like a small zigzag-like accent mark placed over a word that indicates to the rabbi or to the cantor how it should be sung. And it's called a shalshalet. I'll put up on the screen a picture of some Hebrew words, and you'll notice the letter, second to your left, has this little zigzag mark over it, and that's what's called a shalshalet. In the first message that I did on this, uh, in this series, I played you a short video, a, video, a YouTube clip, of a lesson being given to Hebrew children as to how to sing the Shalshalet. And we'll put up a link later on and you can go to it and, and listen to it if, if you'd like to. But when the Shalshalet is over a letter, it indicates and directs how it should be sung. And it's kind of interesting. It goes... Now, if you're not grateful for anything, one thing you should really be grateful for is that we don't sing the scriptures anymore, okay? But that's how, that's how the shalshalet sounds. When it appears, it always indicates a moment of indecisiveness, of ambivalence, of uncertainty. It indicates a person who is facing a watershed moment an existential crisis, if you like. And it's only found four times in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Just four times the Shalshalet occurs. In each case, it talks about a person who's facing a very difficult, very awkward choice that involves perhaps the letting go of an intensely felt temptation, a deeply held aspiration, it indicates a moment of high psychological drama. The four people that, that find themselves in the Shalshalet moment are Lot in Genesis chapter 19, Eliezer in Genesis chapter 24, Joseph 
in Genesis chapter 39 and Moses in Leviticus 8. And in the first message of the series, I considered Lot. I, we're going to work our way through them chronologically. So Lot's the first occasion. And in Genesis chapter 19 verse 16, it records how the angels were trying to get Lot and his family out of the city of Sodom before judgment fell. And the Bible says in that verse that he hesitated. He, he was in a moment of, I don't know what to do, complete indecision. Lot's pursuit of wealth as a means of establishing and securing his identity created an existential crisis for him when God said, I'm about to judge the city. God was about to judge the city that Lot had tried so hard to be part of, and he's, he's being torn apart, and the Shalshalet indicates that moment. This week I want to uh, look at the second occurrence of the Shalshalet, and it centers in a person by the name of Eleazar, and it's found in Genesis 24, and I want us to read together the first 12 verses of Genesis 24. It goes like this. Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who was in charge over all that he had, Please swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. You shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's family and from the land of my relatives, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He shall send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you shall be free from my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took the ten of his master's camels and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand, and he arose and went to the city of Nahor in Aram Naharim, and made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water in the evening, when the woman came out to draw water. Then he said, you get the point, then he said, that's the Shalshalet. O Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, please let me have success this day and show kindness to my master, Abraham. Now, the passage goes on to tell about how Eliezer arranged a test. He prayed that the Lord uh, would bring along a woman, and he suggests that when this woman comes along and offers him a drink from the well and also uh, offers to, drink, uh, to, to quench the thirst of his camels, this will be the woman that he's seeking. Now, just as a bit of a backup, the passage actually leaves the servant unnamed. Genesis chapter 24 doesn't tell us who it is, but most scholars assume it is a man by the name of Eliezer, and the reason for that harkens back to Genesis chapter 15, where he, where he is named. Um, the, the oldest and most trusted servant of Genesis 24 is most likely to be the servant that's named in Genesis 15. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, God had promised Abraham an heir, but nothing had been forthcoming. 
In the Genesis passage of 15, Abraham is praying and asking, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, according to ancient custom, when a person had no heir, a trusted servant could be adopted and become the heir and uh, a ruler of the household and provider for that person in their old age. And at that time, Genesis 15, Eleazar stands in that relationship to Abraham. He, at that point, stands to inherit Abraham's wealth and position. We know the story. In time, the heir that God had promised Abraham and Sarah arrived. And as a result of Isaac's arrival, Eleazar's potential position, of course, changes dramatically. Many years pass, and in Genesis 24, Eleazar, the trusted servant of the household, is being asked by Abraham to go back to his home country and find a bride for Isaac, who's now of age to be married. And he obeys, but verse 12 the shalshalet occurs. Then he said, there is an indecision going on. There's, there's something happening in Eleazar's heart regarding this mission. He's ambivalent. He's in two minds. This is a watershed moment for him. Now, the somewhat puzzling question is, why? What is it about this moment that makes it so portentous, so fateful for him? Hebrew scholars have debated this question over the years, and they've suggested several possibilities. Some scholars have concluded that Eliezer's ambivalence had to do with the actual permissibility of a test like this. Jewish law forbids the occult and, and, and any occult involvement, and it frowns on the quest of seeking omens. Perhaps Eliezer felt that what he was about to ask was bordering dangerously on pagan practices. Perhaps he was asking for a sign and, and, and it wasn't permissible. And so there are scholars who feel that this is, this is why uh, Eliezer was ambivalent. Secondly, scholars have suggested that perhaps Eliezer was racked with doubt about whether a single test like this was actually sufficient grounds on which to base such a fateful decision. I mean, this is about choosing a marriage partner for his boss's son. It, 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 Perhaps there should be something a little more substantial than, than a kind of a coincidental happening. I suspect all of us would frown on some guy praying, okay, God, the next woman who comes through the door and says hello to me and offers to feed my dog is the woman that I'm going to marry. <laughs> Most of us would kind of raise our eyebrows. Perhaps Eliezer is struggling with how valid this prayer and test is. Thirdly, the Jewish Midrash, which is biblical exegesis by ancient Jewish authorities, suggests a third alternative for the presence of the Shalshalet, and one that I think is potentially much more insightful and is reason for his hesitation and ambivalence. And the ancient Midrash suggests that Eleazar was actually hoping that Isaac would marry his own daughter. Now, clearly the text doesn't state this, but ancient scholars have some reasons for their assumptions other than a simple flight of exegetical imagination. As I've already mentioned, we know that at one point in time, it really did look as if Abraham's estate and status would in fact pass to Eliezer. 
Isaac's arrival put paid to that possibility. But with Isaac not having a wife and Abraham's tenacious unwillingness to marry him off to a local Canaanite girl, it seemed that Eliezer might have been hopeful that his own daughter would be a viable option. In that way, of course, Abraham's estate would end up in Eliezer's family, howbeit somewhat indirectly. Now, as evidence for that theory, scholars point to a couple of things. In verse 5 in the text, it says, Perhaps this woman or the woman will not be willing to follow me. And the Hebrew word that's translated by our English word, perhaps, is a word, yulai, which, which scholars say is not a neutral word. Hebrew scholars note that this particular word involves an emotional involvement in an outcome that one is hoping for. The word perhaps, in this instance, is an unconscious expression of the fact that Eliezer is grappling with whether he actually wants this mission to succeed. If the mission were to fail, then once again it would place him, or at least his daughter and thereby his family, in a position to inherit Abraham's estate. So it's with profound ambivalence, with profoundly mixed feelings, that Eliezer is now praying for this woman who might be God's choice for Isaac's wife. And so in verse 12 it says, Then he said... He, 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 He's ambivalent. This is a watershed moment for him. Eliezer knows that if his daughter marries Isaac, it would greatly enhance his own status and obviously his wealth and his influence. I mentioned in the first message that on the four occasions where Shalshalet occurs, they can nearly all, three out of four, be boiled down to issues of money, sex and power. How incredibly relevant is that? I suggested in that first message that the issue that Lot faced was one of wealth. He moved to Sodom to increase his portfolio. He looked at Sodom and thought, this is a place where I can do well. Perhaps in the second message, I could suggest that the, in, the issue that Eleazar is grappling with is influence and status. He's going to step up into Abraham's position. Now, I know the reality of um, the reality of life is that it's almost impossible to untangle those three concepts, money, sex, and power. Money manifests itself as power. Sex is used to acquire both money and power. Money and power can be used to procure sex. Power is frequently used to manipulate wealth, and wealth is just as often frequently used to manipulate <coughs> and to buy power, and so on and on it goes. They are very much intertwined. I'm not suggesting that those three things are wrong. All, in fact, are God-given and are intended for blessing. But I think all of us are aware of their incredible ability and power to corrupt us. Remember Lord Acton's famous quip, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We're, we're aware of its power to corrupt. Actually, the truth is power in and of itself doesn't corrupt. It only highlights and heightens pre-existing ethical tendencies within us that do lead to corruption. But here Eliezer is facing a shall shall its moment. Now in Lot's case, he didn't particularly come out of his shall shall it moment with flying colours. But I'd like to suggest to you that actually Eliezer does. He is grappling with a deeply held aspiration, but he exhibits something that, at least in my experience, is very rare. 
Firstly, he is self-aware enough to identify that deep inner aspiration. And secondly, he's spiritual enough to call it into question and to submit it to the Lord in prayer. And Eliezer's prayer is a classic and very sincere, not my will, but yours be done type prayer. He engages in it and it wasn't, it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't without cost. Such prayers, sincerely prayed, never are. Uh, I suggested to you in the first message of the series that obviously the Greek language doesn't have shall shall it. It's only found in the Hebrew language. It doesn't have anything even equivalent to it. If it did, I suspect there might be a shall shall it placed somewhere over the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Essentially along the lines of, if what's about to happen could possibly be avoided, then I would really like to avoid it. But if not... Not my will, but thine be done. That, that for Jesus, was a shall shall let moment. And like Eliezer, Jesus, God's most trusted servant, pursues a will and a desire that is other than his own in that moment of time. Nevertheless, he's struggling. He's ambivalent in that kairos moment. But he pursues God's will and not simply his own desires. Now, bringing that down to you and I here in the 21st century, what might Eliezer's shall shall it moment mean for you and I? Does it possibly have any relevance? Well, as I suggested to you, money, sex and power are particularly relevant almost in every generation. Let me focus on this little issue of power and pose a question. Do you assume that every opportunity to advance your deeply held aspirations your career prospects, your ministry, or your reputation is from God. I don't know how many times over the years I've heard people say well, something to the effect, well, it must be God. I mean, he's given me the desires of my heart, and I really desire this position. Um, it, it will give me influence and power. Ipso facto, it, it must be of God. It's an open door. Therefore, it must be the Lord. Again, over the years, I've more times than I care to count, I've been horrified watching people take a pathway that, at least to me, seemed a very questionable one, but they take it on the basis of and justify it by the fact that, well, there's an open door. It never seems to occur to these people that God might not be the only person who can or might open doors. I mentioned that Eliezer exhibits something that I find very rare in people, and that's self-awareness. He's aware and, and identifies his deeply held ambitions and aspirations. He doesn't simply assume that the potential pathway that's opening up before him to where he can be in Abraham's status and power is, is right or, or God-approved. He has enough self-awareness and enough spiritual nous to question his own desires and to allow the Holy Spirit to probe his heart. And in this case, I think his ambivalence is actually a very, very positive thing. David exhibited exactly the same spiritual sensibility when after Saul's death, he questioned whether it was the right thing to simply go up to Jerusalem and take the kingdom. A kingdom which, by the way, had been prophesied to be ultimately his. Now the wisdom of the world would tell us, seize the opportunity. It's there to be taken. We have Proverbs, strike while the iron is hot. Make hay while the sun shines. He who hesitates is lost. There's an open door, take it. 
And you know what? There's enough wisdom in these Proverbs to make us sit up and take notice, and yet enough error to damn us when we blindly assume that they're true in every case. David was a bit like Eliezer. He questions his own heart and he prays, not my will but thine be done. And he asks the Lord, shall I go up to Jerusalem? Interestingly enough, God replies and says, no, go to Hebron. Both David and Eliezer submit their desires, their ambitions, their potential pathway to power and influence to the Lord in prayer. Now you might be sitting there thinking, Don, well, you know, is, is ambition wrong? Surely it's not wrong for me to want to get ahead, to make a success of my life, to advance my career prospects, to take the promotion. And my response would be, no, not necessarily so, but I think we do well to be reminded of the truth of Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. This I know, the favour that brings promotion and power doesn't come from anywhere on earth. For no one exalts a person but God, the true judge of all. He alone determines where favour rests. He anoints one for greatness and brings another down to his knees. This psalm indicates that promotion is God's business. And at the very least, we should submit any possible pathways, uh, whether it be to promotion and power and influence, to him in prayer and ask for his thoughts on the matter. And to allow the Holy Spirit to shine a light on our aspirations, on our motivations. We go before him and invite his critique and we listen for it. You know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase where people are talking about somebody's blind ambition. Ambition not only has the potential to make us blind, it has the potential to make us deaf as well. When we don't identify those deep aspirations, when we aren't self-aware enough to even recognize them, sometimes we will turn away from the possibility of hearing the Lord's critique. We, we don't want to hear what he has to say. The tragic res result of that attitude can be to a people who are largely deaf, God becomes largely dumb. He doesn't speak because we, we won't hear. We don't want to hear. Perhaps some of you will remember your mum saying to you, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Mm -hmm. Now what they meant, of course, was that you put more on your plate than your stomach can digest. What's true of your eyes and your stomach can also be true of your eyes and your heart. Your eyes are bigger than your heart. We, we overreach in our ambition. The problem with ambition, with a desire for control and power, is that it has this tendency to, to overreach. When ambition becomes untethered from God's call and his purposes, I, I tell you, you have a recipe for disaster. You might be thinking, Don, well, how do I know if my ambition is untethered? Well, one sure sign is there is an unwillingness to pause in ambivalent prayer and question its validity. Scripture gives us numerous examples of people whose ambition went without being questioned and who subsequently overreached with ruinous consequences. Korah, Absalom, Adonijah come readily to mind. In fact, let's look briefly at Absalom. You can, you can read the whole story in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapters 13 through 15. Absalom was a very bright, um, very handsome young man. Um, very ambitious young man. He set his sights on Israel's throne. And I suspect as you read the story, he had reasonable reasons to think that the throne could possibly be his. Clearly, as the story unfolds, we see that he has the charisma and the kingly giftings to be possibly a very great king. He was charming and he won the people's love and loyalty easily and quickly. 
The fact that he was stunningly handsome didn't harm his cause and chances. You know, people were superficial and shallow back in those days too. The celebrity culture isn't necessarily new. Perhaps he concluded that he had the name for it. His name, Absalom, comes from Hebrew Absalom, the father of peace. He might have imagined that prophetically this indicated that he could have been included in the genealogy of the one who ultimately would be called the Prince of Peace. Thereby he could say, I, I am the father of peace. I've, I've got the name prophetically to, to fulfill this role. Now, whatever his thinking, whatever his reasons, he, unlike Eliezer, assumed unquestioningly that what he desired must in fact be God's will. And completely lacking self-awareness and any sense of the godly ambivalence that David and Eliezer manifested, he aggressively pursued his desires and in doing so trampled and violated spiritual principles and values. The very first thing he did was he removed his competition. He had Amnon, who was David's firstborn son, and therefore probably in the eyes of most, the one likely to uh, assume David's throne. Uh, Absalom had him assassinated. Now, if you, if you know the backstory, Absalom, at least ostensibly, had reasons to hate Amnon and to want him assassinated. He, he raped uh, Absalom's half-sister, Tamar. But I cannot help but think, knowing Absalom as we do, that there were deeper reasons for having Amnon killed. He had him killed because he removed a potential roadblock in his pathway to power, to influence, and to the throne. It's amazing what we can justify when we are determined to pursue a certain course of action. Now you might be thinking, or Don, really, I'm, I'm, I mean, I might be ambitious, but I'm not likely to assassinate my competition. Okay, accept it. But have you heard the phrase, character assassination? You wouldn't be the first person in history to sow seeds of dissension and division and call into question the character of a person who's most likely to stand in your way in terms of the passment of personal advancement. You, you might even have good outward reasons to do so, as Absalom had with Amnon. However, in many cases, the external reasons mask deeper inward motivations that drive us. While it's very true that God looks not at the external but at the heart, that's not so true of us. We tend not to look at our own hearts. We simply don't have enough self-awareness to know our own motivations and we don't or won't stop in ambivalent prayer to ask God to reveal them. So having first removed Amnon from the equation, Absalom then tragically moves to undermine his ultimate superior, his father David, with tragic consequences. And you can read that in the 2 Samuel passage. The point of raising this is that it is a pathway that has been repeated so many times. When people give way to ambition and pursue power, control and influence without Eliezer type ambivalent prayer, without questioning their own heart, the potential for Absalom-like results is ever present. And you know, don't limit this to high level politics. The whole idea of power and control comes right down to individual levels. It happens in marriages as one spouse or the other fights to get that place of control and influence and dominance over the other. It happens in families when anger or moodiness or even violence, whether it be verbal or physical, is used to get control. 
It happens in churches where pastors bully people and people bully pastors. It happens in groups of friends. Of course, it happens at work. You know, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche understood that human beings are hungry for power. Nietzsche declared that the will to power is the basic human drive and is the essence of our humanity. He claimed that people have a craving to control their own destinies and to be free to realize their individualistic potential without restraints from anyone. To be free from all limitations, he contended, is an ultimate aspiration. When you think about that, I suspect that Nietzsche was closer to the truth and closer to the truth of the Bible than many of us would feel comfortable acknowledging. When you think about Adam and Eve's very first sin, it was a grab for power. We will be as God. Richard Foster notes that our pursuit of position and power has the capacity to completely corrupt and destroy relationships. And he notes, lifelong friends can be turned into mortal enemies the moment the vice presidency of the company is at stake. Climb, push, shove is the language of power. And as we conclude, can I suggest to you that whether it be in your marriage, in your home, at your church, or on the job, or among your friends, when you see climbing, pushing, and shoving, whether it be in your friends or in your own heart, then I think you can safely assume that power and control dynamics are in operation and not in a healthy way. Although this is another sermon, I'd like to suggest to you that the way of Jesus is completely different. We are not after control, uh, control or power. What we do do by virtue of love and servanthood is exercise influence. Mother Teresa had no position of control or power, and yet a phenomenal place of influence, and she gained it by virtue of love and servanthood. It's exactly the same for you and I. Eliezer's shall-shallet moment, that, that moment of ambivalence, was a healthy moment for him, as he questioned his own deep aspirations, allowed God to search his own heart, and prayed the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Severely tempted to manoeuvre and manipulate his circumstances to advance his own agenda, he refused to do, to, to do so, and he praised the shall-shallet prayer. I would pray that we might be a people after that order, that we aren't interested in control and power, but through love and servanthood, maybe in this watershed moment, in our cultural moment, we can exercise influence in a way that is godly and servant-hearted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word to expose our hearts. We know that it's a sharp, two-edged sword that goes deeply into us. And Lord, we welcome your word going deep into our heart. We long above all else, Jesus, to be a people that look like you, that behave like you, that serve like you, that love like you. And in this moment, this cultural moment, would you help us to be a people who are not greedily seeking to advance their own agenda at the expense of other people, but are a people like you who are looking out in love to serve and minister to others. Jesus, we ask it that your name might be glorified, that you might be lifted up. Lord, that you might look at us as your people and be pleased, that you might see the travail of your own soul and be satisfied as you look at a people redeemed by your blood and filled by your spirit. Help us to be that people in this moment because we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.